This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. Tuesday, the 1st of November, 2022. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Alex Steele over in New York recovering from Halloween, which I hear is a bit of a thing over there. Um, today, Alex, markets certainly over here not looking that scary. For you, though, a little bit of a rollover taking place. The data... Mm-hmm was interesting, I thought, a little bit earlier. We got um, the ISM manufacturing data, which showed that bottlenecks are easing, but employment remains sticky, and the JOLTS data confirming the same thing. So, so equity markets kind of rolled over. But the big story over here earlier was a rumour that China is preparing to exit COVID zero, which gave which gave European equity markets a bit of a boost first thing. Yeah, and you can definitely still see that within the commodity market too. Like some of the base metals are doing really well. And we'll talk about this later, but like do we want that to happen? Like clearly we want people to be healthy and out and living their lives. But do we want like Chinese demand come roaring back? That's gonna tra- create some more inflationary pressures too. Um and then you mentioned the Jolts data it was really solid. There are still a lot of jobs out there. And you are talking about a rollover in the equity market. That was not a good data point for the Fed uh, headed into their two-day meeting, dot, dot, dot. How do you trade the next 24 hours? I think it's going to be really interesting. I think you probably just sit on your hands. Um, that, I think, would be the uh, the historic approach that, that most people ultimately take. But the meeting has started. It t- started on time, we understand, uh, according to the Federal Reserve uh, at 10.30 Eastern time. Uh, two days of Fed focus, and then, we, of course, we get to the Bank of England. But we've got a little bit of a, uh, a Bank of England story as well today in the form of the bank becoming the first major central bank to start active quantitative tightening. So it is now selling bonds back into the market. It sold £750 million worth of bonds. Uh, The bid to cover was around, I think, 3.6. So fairly active demand for what was a collection of relatively short-dated bonds, which are going to be easier to sell than the longer-dated bonds that they're ultimately going to have to deal with further down the road. But it was a good start, Alex. Things started well. Andrew Bailey, I'm sure, (laughs) is very pleased over the road as he continues to scrub the orange paint off the bank. Yep. And I would say that, very funny, orange paint off the bank. And I think that every other central bank is watching this too. I feel like the Bank of England has been ahead of everything. They've done everything first and made all the mistakes first too. So if this can go well, um, this could be a nice template for other central banks that don't just want to run off uh, their balance sheet. Absolutely. Marcus Ashworth is pulling a face. At this moment in time. <laughs> throw the shade, uh, throw the shade. Because as we all know, Marcus has not been not been a fan of this strategy of, of Debbie Downer is here. Tightening. Yeah. So so the, the Ashworth joins us from Bloomberg Opinion. Um this went well, I thought. This was this was an excellent first start uh of the, the quantitative tightening process. The bank must be must be very pleased this evening. Yeah, well I hope they're not because I don't think they should be doing it, but they've ignored me. How very dare they? Um, but this one is a real, it's only 750 million of short date, three to seven years, of which the bank has, uh, knows it can fill lots of holes into uh, primary dealers who, who need these bonds because they've been running short on repo for ever and a day because basically the Treasury has not been issuing very much of these types of securities because the Bank of England owned them all, basically. Um, so they own up to 70% of some of these issues. So funny enough, they can uh, selectively, uh, if they're careful, as they seem to be, um, 
can happily do this. It's just over a period of time, uh, hopefully this becomes a non-story. Mm-hmm. Certainly, as Sky is saying, today's first little mini effort you know, was the safest and, 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 and smallest thing they could do, and it, it seems to have gone off perfectly fine. I feel like that can be our theme today, Guy. As Guy says. Yesterday was as Alex says. Today I'll be as Guy says. What do you think? I, I like this you idea. You good? Yeah, okay. I like this idea. more of these kinds of days. Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, hey, Marcus. Marcus again is pulling a face. Of course he is. Uh, Marcus, <laughs> should they be actively selling guilds right now? Should they be? Oh, they've ignored me. Um, yes, I, I mean, suppose. It, it, it went well. We could have thrown sh- through shade at them last <clears throat> week or something for it, but yeah, it yeah. went well. Should they be? Well, huh, okay. I, I think in some senses they need to provide liquidity in a bunch of uh, parts of the curve which they've stripped all liquidity out of. So in some senses, for a curve management uh, housekeeping basis, they're perfectly correct to sell this one and that one and what have you. Or indeed the government could do that. But for whatever reason, the Bank of England owns it. Why not just get the Bank of England to sell it back? So, So part of me says, yes, they should be. The other part of me says is that why are they trying to do this competing against the government when we know the government is going to have to issue unreal amounts of gilts next year, as much as the previous seven years' worth of net issuance put together and probably times two. We are going to go to a lot of new gilts next year, probably 260-odd billion more of net supply. And that is something which is going to, at some point, prove indigestible. It won't help that the Bank of England is actively selling their own bonds, competing with the government. But maybe that's not today's problem. It's maybe more next year's. If they don't sell, they've got to pay interest on it. It's going to cost, I, whichever way you I look at it. No, no, they're going to crystallise a loss yeah. unless they're just letting it run off. But bear yeah. in mind, they paid up. A lot of these bonds they bought, they paid 120, 140 face value, yeah. and it matures at 100. So they're going to lose a lot yeah, anyway. So they're going to lose money on these. On do, these. do you know how much the Bank of England's in the hole for? Do you know how much they have theoretically well, they paid, marked the, the them The Treasury's given them 11 so far billion. Yeah, do you know how much more they need? They need just to mark to market. No, I I do not. Two hundred yeah, yeah. billion, and that's just the guilt portfolio. And the credit one, they of course they've lost as well. But I mean, it's, it's a lot of you know they've got eight hundred and forty nominal, and it's worth six hundred and forty billion. But, but then, but they won't. They don't that, lose that it. That no, assumes we lose that it. they're going to sell. It. They're going to assume, that assumes they're going to sell all of it, right? If they were to, yes, but they're not going to. Well, so the no. balance sheet's not going to go down to. The original level, so that numbers that number is no, but they're, they're running mark to market holdings. Yeah, okay, so so yeah, okay, but the, but but my point is they're not going to sell all of this stuff, are they? Uh, Bailey made it very clear they got they were about say four fifty before the pandemic. They got up to we say nine hundred. They would like to get back to about four fifty, right? And they're now at eight thirty eight or something. Okay, so they've got a lot more to sell. Uh, and they will do that happily each year, 40-odd billion. Do more, they hold on to the longer-duration stuff for longer? I.e., is that... Well, what they'll sell first, ironically, is that they're, and they made an absolute fortune on, is this recent buyback. Yeah. They bought a lot of long-dated stuff, and because they have made out, they have made billions out of our pension fund industry, i.e., again, you and me, Guy. So Alex is innocent from this one, but uh, uh-huh. she doesn't get hit. But um, yeah. Also, I don't have a pension, so there's that too. <laughs> well, indeed. Uh, I just looked at my one, actually. I, mean, I was trying to get my a dental claim form, and I ended up going looking at my pension. I really wish I hadn't done that. Now you've got, uh, got, you got sore yeah, teeth. Yeah, I literally had to say that. But, you know, the point is, is that there is a, a lot of money going to have to be transferred from the Treasury to the Bank of England to make good of this. They are, instead of unwinding QT first and then raising interest rates they've done it the other way around and fine enough we're taking a very big hit on it um 
what about the stuff that they bought during the pension crisis? As I said, that's, that's the stuff yeah, they made a lot of money yeah. on. But, well, that that, all, so, that, so that's what you were talking about. Yeah, they, they would have, well, they, they'll make a lot of money out of that. Uh, but compared to the 200 billion... It's nothing. It's nothing, yeah. And it's in a separate bucket and they still haven't announced what they're going to do with that yet. I would hope that at some point they could get on with that because you know then they could really can turn around and say it wasn't Q, right. QE again. Yeah. It was financial stability. And the moral hazard argument kind of goes away, etc. Yeah. Um, okay, what does the BOE do Thursday? Well, uh, on October the 6th, I wrote that they should hike 75 basis points. And I believe that is exactly what they shall do. So they are listening to you? Uh, no. Oh, well, you know, I just want, let's hope they have listened to me on that one. But I, I didn't think at the time it was right to hike 100. Equally, uh, I still think it's probably unlikely they will only go 50. There will be, we suspect, two out of the nine will vote for a 50. Uh, the, the new lady, Swati Dingra, and indeed uh, Silvana Tenreiro. Um, but that's the expectation. The other seven will vote for 75. I think they sort of have to do 75. They only did 50 last time around, and they got themselves in a bit of a world of pain for it. Uh, this time around, I think, as the Fed, almost certainly we think tomorrow is going to hike 75. There's no prizes from straying away from the herd, hmm. as the head of debt management office put so beautifully the other day. Then what? Uh, and then I hope they only do do 50, or possibly only 25. I don't think they need to hike much more. My do, personal talk, where, How high do you think they go? 375. That's all? That's, that's what I think. Why? Because um, inflation comes down faster or because growth really stinks? Because our economy dies. So the, the growth scare will outweigh the inflation scare? Yeah, because I think they need to look through the inflation scare because it's a bunch of stuff they can't control. It's going to fall away quickly anyway. Uh, it's all... But it isn't. That's the problem. Well, yeah, right. Whatever. I, I, think, I think the economy <laughs> will do for that. This is what they're supposed to look through inflation. It's supposed to be whether inflation is going to be in two or three years' time, and they know it's going to be below their target. They've already told us it's going to be well below, well below their target. So I just think they need to do a bit, a little bit more, but not overdo it. If you if you factor in the fiscal tightening, which is coming, how does that change the equation for they're the bank? They're not going to raise taxes on me again, guy. Are they? Are I, you I think you. Uh, I think what everybody is going to see their tax uh, tax rate going up yeah. is what Hunt and uh, Sinak yeah. said earlier this week. They don't um, mean me, though, do they? Of course, they don't mean you. Yeah. Of course, they everyone never... but you actually yeah. is what yeah. they yeah. said. If you look at the details, because um, he's paid too much already. But but it's going to have to go up, and we're going to have to see some cuts. So how does that how does how does the fiscal and the monetary work to, to together? Let's hope maybe that is possible. All right, the most important thing I try, I try to I, do argue, they compensate? Well, I try to argue the reason why you needed Rishi and not you know Liz and Quasi is because you had to get rid of that risk premium. That is a, that that was just self harm yeah. of which was going to cost us an awful lot more than necessary. We have sort of got rid of that. So the price for that is probably both recession and, um, you know, but you could argue, therefore, a quicker fall in inflation is the other upside from it, which might mean that the banking has to, in the end, hike less. Yep. So there are some upsides from it. But uh, the fiscal balance has got to be, as we're about to do something tomorrow, which hopefully you'll read, Tan Dan Hansen, our excellent uh, uh, Bank of England economist, um, UK economist, is saying that you know, the risk is they do too much here. Mm -hmm. Now, I think there's a lot of politics going on, a bit like we see with the immigration thing. There's a lot of this new government trying to make things look a lot worse, perhaps, than they are, and then all of a sudden they'll seem more reasonable and therefore aren't we grateful they've only just hiked taxes on us by 5% rather than they could have done it by 10%. You see what I'm saying? And no doubt that any tax that gets hiked now will miraculously be given back to us in about 18 months time. Wait, are you talking about political spin? Are you saying that that's a thing that happens? I mean, uh, wow. Uh, 
I, I, I take it all back and wash my mouth out in the second one. <laughs> or maybe um, even the tax hikes don't come out until after the next general election. Uh, that's even, I think, I think people will see through that. But, you know. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, I know we're going to talk about the Fed later on, but I want to see how the BOE and the Fed intersect here. If we face a Fed that's looking at consecutive 75 basis points and there is no gear shifting here, what kind of pressure does that put the BOE in? Um, good one. I think Powell has very little choice here but to keep going with it. I think he'll hike 75. If he shows even a scintilla of not going 75 next time after that, it is going to instantly price in the pivot again, which is, you know, everyone wants to do that. And he, I think he has to brave it to much closer to the next meeting where then maybe he can shade it. I don't think there's any prizes for telling us now yeah. they're going to do less next time around. He's got two payrolls and two CPI prints. Exactly. Again. So I think he buys himself time by says, no, we're sticking with 75 again. It's that type of mantra. And therefore that puts <laughs> the Bank of England in no choice but to also hike 75, at least until it gets closer to their December meeting. Was that supposed to be Powell's voice? Because it sounded a lot like what our line producer does when he sounds like Guy. It sounded very similar. <laughs> I don't know what type of voice it was. We all sound the same. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Uh, it's the accent thing. Um, so... Would that be considered a hawkish 75 if that's what we get tomorrow? No, because no one's going to believe it because we all know that at some point they are going to pivot. Just, just So no matter his... what, it's going to be a, a dovish 75 basis point hike? I sort of think it has to be. The Bank of England, to be fair, have, have been much more measured than the rest. That's why when you said you think the Bank of England has been first. They've managed to be first and not get anything for it. They were first to hike interest rates, but then they got slower. Uh, they were the first to do... A passive quantitative tightening now clearly as we know today the first to act a quantitative tightening but got no benefit out of it so but what they have been i suppose is measured and reasonable as i said they only hiked 50 basis points last time and there was a, yeah. a reason for that because they felt they needed to know the the full fiscal picture unfortunately that fiscal picture is now worse nonetheless the government is doing something more normal and perhaps they can take that but in the round they have to hike 75 this time and i think they will a bit like the fed but maybe not quite as firmly as the Fed, there will be, yes, we're going to continue to hike interest rates. We're not going to tell you quite by how much, yep. but we are going to keep i got a minute left. If the Chinese economy reopens, is that good news or bad news? Alex posed this question a little bit earlier on. Good news because it's going to drive demand. Bad news because commodity prices are going to go through the roof. Yeah, I mean, oil prices are one of these things that I find quite interesting. People, you know, people, the amount of talk you got, you'd think oil was 150. It's not. And I think likewise with gold, everyone says, my gold's going to go up. Gold's still got a 1600. Gas is still. So I don't think there is quite as much in this China story as perhaps people might fear. Nonetheless, I don't think they're going to open as quickly or as aggressively. I don't think they can. I don't think there's going to be as much umph as there might once have been. And I think, therefore, with regards to commodity prices, there'll be some uplift. I doubt it'll last long. Ending on a Debbie Downer note. That's why we shocked. love you, Marcus. <laughs> Marcus always like tries to say, "Oh, let's have the optimistic question," but then but you then see he always needs to question. turn it precisely, turn it negative. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, precisely. Give me some good news, and then we come to you. Where's the good news? I'm sure there's some there somewhere. Uh, okay, we're going to talk more about uh, China and Brazil next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So let's turn now to China and we'll do a little Brazil uh, in the meantime as well. So Chinese stocks rallied in Hong Kong. Um, you had the yuan also find a nice stability here, all because of unverified social media posts that circulated online overnight that a committee 
was being formed to assess scenarios on how to exit COVID zero. Now, you did have shares pair gains after Chinese foreign ministry spokesman said he is not aware of such a committee. But nonetheless, just the whisper of a rumor was enough to set fire uh, to these stocks. Um, let's get more here with Damien Sassauer of Bloomberg Intelligence. He's a chief emerging market credit strategist. Damien, when you hear these unverified reports, how much credence do you put into that? Like, I feel like I've seen this movie before. Yeah, no, I agree with you, Alex. I don't put much credence in it at all. I mean, it's, to me, it, what it seems is that positioning is very, very light, specifically in H shares in Hong Kong. I mean, we saw a 5.8% rally off the back of this uh, rumor, but the market's down 37% year to date, Alex. So, I mean, you know, too little to come by, in my opinion. But again, you know, it does speak to when the economy does reopen, which, you know, will take time for sure. Um, you know, there's probably some money to be made there, at least over, you know, over the short term. But if you're a long term value driven investor, I mean, the volatility in that market, given the lack of liquidity, is just far too great to hang your hat on, in my opinion. When do you think this is going to happen? How do you think this process is going to unfold? I, do, are there we're post some big political events now. Is there a reason to think that there there is some fire here as long as, as well as the smoke? I'm just, I, I just kind of get your sense of what is happening in the Chinese economy right now. Do the Chinese authorities need to start thinking about this, given what is happening in the property market and elsewhere? Well, absolutely, Guy. And I'm surprised that this is, you know, the first admission that they might even very well be starting to think about this, right? Because, you know, everyone's been calling for it. I mean, inter-party Congress just last month, you know, many were expecting some positive news on the COVID zero front. But I mean, if you just look at, you know, I mean, some of the COVID zero advocates that were named to the Politburo Standing Committee guy, I mean, you know, these are people who are not advocates of of returning to, you know, pre-pandemic levels there. So, you know, it kind of speaks in contrary to what President Xi is trying to do here. And so, look, fundamentally, which is all we can hang our hat on in China mm -hmm. today, this situation is deteriorating and deteriorating even more uh, quickly than we could even imagine. And so when I talk about this whole pyramid collapsing in China credit, let me take you through it. It was weak developers last year, Evergrande and Agile. It was stronger hands this year, Vanke and Cogard. And now we're seeing government-backed property developers like Greenland and SIFI, you know, um, really, you know, suspending payments and defaulting on their debt and the spillover into local government finance vehicles, an area of the market that is something on the order of $6 trillion. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, that's where the rubber meets the road, because that's the government defaulting now, right? That's municipal bonds here in the US defaulting. And that's the risk. Okay, so let's just play the what if game. What if we do get some kind of reopening? The property sector is still a hot mess. What if we get a kind of reopening? What does that actually look like? Like, does everyone go out well, and buy stuff? Do they go and buy property? Is there some sort of stabilization? Do commodities go up a lot? Well, you just right. You just hit the nail. It's commodity prices, right? But if you look at I the was trying PMI to get data, you there I mean, without saying it. <laughs> I mean, of course you come. I mean, okay, commodity girl. <laughs> Steep drop in export prices in the sub-index of the PMI this morning tells you everything you need to know. Yes, when COVID zero comes to an end, you should see activity pick up. You should see demand for commodities, but that will be contingent on external demand. And external demand, if you're talking Europe and the U.S. and the broader world writ large, is declining. So, yes, there'll be a restocking period, you know. But and again, the other question is, you know, you know, margin compression, you know, at what point, you know, do Chinese corporates fail to pass that on to consumers, you know, and start mm -hmm. to live with this higher level of inflation that has basically gripped the market domestically? You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm suspect there. Right. So, you know, for me, it's going to be structural. And quite frankly, the amount of wealth that's been, you know, kind of just basically eroded from the Chinese system, all assets, equities, fixed, you name it, 
it's just too much for this economy to bear without you seeing massive rate cuts, massive fiscal stimulus along the lines of we saw post 2008. I mean, it's going to take it's more than just a Band-Aid to get that market right. Let's turn to Brazil. Um, Love to. Lots. uh, This is a market that's done relatively well, uh, uh, kind of very well in in many respects. Very much. But we don't have at the moment a clear understanding of the transfer of power to Lula from Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro is still being very quiet. The local market, the, the the local trading is more cautious than the international trading. The locals clearly are a bit nervous about this. What is your perspective on it? Well, I think we do have clarity there, Guy, I have to say, you know, given what I'm seeing. I mean, look, we do have truck drivers blocking major transport routes, you know, outside of Sao Paulo and Rio. You know, we've got all of that going on. The but 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 this was a rejection of Bolsonarismo. I mean, look, you know, his policies on the virus, I mean, that left 700,000 people dead. Climate, deforestation, social, LGBTQ rights. I mean, all of that has been rejected now. And look, the great thing about this outcome, in my opinion, if it does hold, you know, Guy, and look, Bolsonaro's chief of staff just basically allowed, um, um, yeah. you know, them to use a, 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 a space for the transition of power for the two teams to meet. So, you know, Bolsonaro is all but conceded. But, you know, for me, it's, you know, the slim margin of victory suggests that Lula cannot govern from the far left any longer. He's going to have to govern from the center. And his vice president, Geraldo Alckman, mm-hmm. is right down the middle. He's right center. So, you know, I believe this actually can be a good thing for Brazil if that's the way, you know, it's a split Congress. Lula's going to have to use a lot more caution, a lot more austerity in his policies. And so, yeah, you know, I mean, if you just look at the price action off the back of this, it's been a rip, man. I mean, Petrobras ADRs, which were down over 10% yesterday, are now down only 3% since Friday's close. And most of the Brazilian equity market is up 2 3 4% now, Vale, et cetera, so Ambev and others. So, you know, I mean, the market is sort of, you know, championing this. It's sort of, you know, um, it, it's a positive, in my opinion. And certainly, if they can just get the fiscal in order, it's going to be a positive from the credit side also. And we're seeing CDS spreads coming off the back of it. Great stuff. Damien, always a pleasure. We could talk to you forever. We're not going to let you go back to work. Damien Sassar, Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Emerging Markets uh, Credit Strategist. And, and I still feel, though, Guy, we're still kind of waiting for something to go wrong in Brazil. And so far, it hasn't. And that feels odd. Like, yes, there are protests, etc. But there's been no concession, but everything seems to still be okay. That feels like a really big win. No, I think it's definitely a step in the right direction. Um, it's just taking a little while. So there's a few jitters, I think, that have crept through a few uh, a few markets. But but as if, if Damien's happy, I'm happy. That's I mean, kind of the way I'm looking. It's really like what Damien says. Let's be honest. Yeah. yeah. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Quick check in here on U.S. markets. The S&P is down by about three-tenths of one percent. The Nasdaq off by six-tenths of one percent. Uh, take a look at the bond market. You did see some stronger buying earlier in the morning. Then after you got that jolt data and the ISM, uh, you saw some selling on the front end. Your front end yields now up by about five basis points. The theory... Job market's still pretty tight. The Fed's going to have to do even more to to get the job market a little bit looser. The other factor uh, contributing to all of this in terms of inflationary impulses is, oh, the price of gasoline. It's also a wonderful campaign tool uh, for President Biden into the midterms on Tuesday. 
Overall, five of the biggest oil companies in the world generated more than $50 billion in profits. Where you see those profits, you're going to want to see governments start coming in and wanting a piece of that pie. Yesterday, President Biden came out and talked about announcing a windfall tax on big oil companies. It's it's DOA. It's dead on arrival in Congress. But nonetheless, it keeps this kind of conversation alive. And that was the backdrop to Manus Cranny at Bloomberg at Adipec talking to Amos Hochstein uh, from Abu Dhabi earlier today. He is the U.S. presidential coordinator. He's basically the guy who helps craft oil policy for the Biden administration. And this is part of their conversation. Look, the president is, this has been a consistent message from the president, from the administration, asking companies to take their profits and invest them back in America, back in production and refining. We have been experiencing elevated prices as a result of geopolitical dynamics, not because of markets, but because we have a war, a devastating war in Europe, where the perpetrator of the war is one of the largest oil producers in the world, one of the largest gas exporters in the world, and is using energy as a weapon. This has seen a massive increase in prices, while, of course, we still have a a, a huge economic growth from post-COVID that is also creating demand growth. So we're telling companies, make a profit, pay your shareholders. But there's a level and a limit to how much profit you can take you without investing. You weren't saying that to oil companies when oil was at 20 bucks in the United States of America. I think I think the point wait, that wait a $20 is when naturally companies don't invest. $100, $90 is naturally historically when companies do invest. The problem now is that they're not doing what they always used to do. I'm not here to represent big oil, Amos. I'm here merely to put the proposition which is People have said to me, you look at this administration's guidance to big oil. Day one, Keystone was binned. We have now the discussion about a new taxation format. And we have a host of sort of no drilling on on federal land. We have various messages which are respectfully schizophrenic. How can you plan for five years, 10 years CapEx, Amos, with schizophrenic policy changes like this. This is how it's been described to me. What's your response to that? I don't think it's been schizophrenic. I think we've been very clear to craft. Look, we are in a, we have to deal with the short term, medium term and long term. We are in a, uh, a time when we have to increase production because we need to make sure, to ensure global economic growth, Yes. we have to have reasonably priced, affordable energy resources, oil and gas. To meet our goals of where we want the world to go by 2035 and 2050, we have to accelerate our investments in renewable energy. Those are consistent with each other. They're not competing with each other. So investing right now, here's a certainty we're giving oil companies. We've said that we are going, now that we have released 180 million barrels of oil onto the market from the SPR, for our national security interests, we need to buy it back. We need to buy another 200 million barrels back over the next several years. We have said, the president himself has told companies, I will will tell you what price I will buy it back at $70 or so. I will start buying back at large amounts. So I will provide you with certainty of price to some degree, so to enable to answer the questions you've asked. Well, there's one way to push a market against you, and that's to tell them at what price you want to replenish the SPR. But I know it's a lengthy document. And I know it has detail. We can we move on, which is about the price cap from the United States of America. Um, I think the language is an effective and a strong level. Forty to sixty dollars is what I understand. The numbers that's in the Bloomberg stories. 
do you really believe 60 bucks is going to keep Russian oil flowing onto the market? Because the conversation I've had with everybody here, everybody's worried about the sanctions coming to bear here in our, at home in Europe. Does 60 bucks keep Russia oil flowing in your mind? So outside of a Bloomberg article, which I would never want to argue with Bloomberg. I think it was Treasury uh, Secretary Yellen who indicated no, it was 40 to 60 bucks. No, I, I don't think so. I, we are going to set the price when we do that and we'll announce it. I, I think all these numbers out there that are just rumors and leaks that I can tell you are not substantiated by reality. Uh, and people should just ignore those. I really would hope people would okay. ignore those numbers. Uh, we are, we've always said that our goal was to keep the Russian barrels on the market while we restrict the revenues to Russia at a point when they're using those revenues to finance the war. There's a balance here, and we have to figure that out. There's a difference in the balance between when we were at $120 a barrel yep. versus when we were at $76 a barrel. So we are going to have to figure out, and we're doing that now, of what the right price is going to be in order to make sure that Russia is still incentivized to sell on the market while uh, we make sure that they're not over-profiting uh, beyond that level. Will it be materially higher than 60? I can't tell you what the price is because if I say anything now, you're gonna, you're, they're going to have rumors again on that. But we re look, we get it. We understand how the market works, and we want to make sure that our goals are achieved. Just clarify, I deal in fact, not rumor. And with that in mind, I want to understand the potency of the price cap when it comes. Because I caught up with the Indian oil minister yesterday. It's very unlikely, the speculation is, it's very unlikely India and China, two of the biggest customers out there uh, for Russian oil, will sign up. We don't know. But given the price cap, it's a fairly impotent proposition if two of the biggest customers of Russia won't sign up. I disagree. Because um, the country, what we're telling people, you don't have to sign up. It's not, you know, a membership. Uh, you, as long as you are purchasing Russian oil yep. at a lower price, that's what we want to achieve. Okay. You have a market price of Brent. Everybody negotiates. You know that nobody buys strictly Brent. There's all kinds of negotiations. Do you really believe that India and China are not going to be negotiating and are not already. We know that Russian oil is not selling at Brent right now. No, it's selling, it's selling at, at a, a discount. discount. So it's just about how much of a discount. That was Amos Hodgstein. Uh, he is U.S. Special Presidential Coordinator, and he really helps to set uh, oil policy. I, I honestly think, Guy, that if you ask any oil CEO in the U.S., and, and, and we have asked them, if there is clarity and cohesion from the White House, every one of them would say no. So to argue that all of these things can coexist and they all make sense together, that's just that's just not factually true. If you ask the people involved in it, they would disagree. So there's still a huge, huge chasm between these two sides. And I think post the midterms, it's, I can't work out whether the post the midterms we're going to get more clarity or more divergence. In, in some ways, I, the, the president's talking about the fact that he'd like to have some sort of a tax on on the the industry appears to me to be pie in the sky like he's just doing it for for mm -hmm. political purposes that like, never going to happen never going to happen now definitely not going to happen assuming that the, the polls are rising in the midterms dealing with the issue of getting stuff across the line when it comes to encouraging investment i think is going to become more difficult as well i in some ways, both sides are just going to dig in. The president's been, or the president and the White House have been all over the place in terms of their policy towards this industry. It has not been consistent. Now, events have clearly changed mm -hmm. what's happening. Yeah. But I just can't see things. I, 
I well, struggle just, to see what the catalyst is to improve things. Just wait to 2024. Just wait till the next presidential election. Oh my yeah. God, we're going to tax everything and everyone for all reasons unknown. Um, it's going to be tricky. But I also wonder if they go after the oil industry more in terms of climate stuff after the election. I don't know. It's going to be fascinating to watch. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. So there are early indications that the new Sunak government here in London may be taking a less belligerent tone towards Brexit and the relationship with the EU. Now, given the economic backdrop, this is understandable. We still don't ultimately know, though, what's going to happen with the Northern Ireland Protocol. And there are plenty of ways in which this relationship can be tripped up. Earlier on, um, our our government's and economy uh, correspondent here in Europe, Lizzie Burden, spoke with the UK's Trade Secretary, Kevin Badenoch, about this issue, basically talking about how this new government plans to encourage investment and how they're going to do that in relationship with maybe repositioning the relationship with the EU. Uh, to grow the economy, we need to have closer ties all across the world. That does include Europe, but um, the businesses that I've been speaking to are from everywhere from Spain to South Korea. And um, I'm very pleased to see just the sheer range of investment that is interested in the UK. Well, the Office and of already Responsibility says, in well, it said in March that trade's going to be 15% lower in the long term, specifically because of Brexit. Do you dispute the OBR? forecast? Um, Yes, I do dispute the OBR's forecast because what happens with trade depends on the actions that uh, I and my colleagues across governments take right now. The OBR is probably making a forecast based on how we used to do things. They don't know how we're going to be doing things. So I think uh, wait and see is, is my response. But we know how much trouble the government's got in recently for ignoring the OBR. Well, I don't think the government ignored the OBR. I think we just didn't see an OBR forecast. And uh, having been a Treasury minister, I distinctly remember pretty much every uh, previous OBR forecast never being quite right. So this is about us working in partnership with the OBR to get good forecasting rather than having a debate about whether the OBR or the government is is correct. We respect the institutions and we work well with them. We're not working uh, against them. The OBR has a view. We have a different view. And um, we'll keep working to find out exactly how to get the best in terms of investment into the UK. So you talked about trade deals with the rest of the world. As Prime Minister, Liz Truss said that a UK-US trade deal was unlikely in the short to medium term. Could we see a deal sooner with Rishi Sunak in number 10? Uh, The US trade deal is not really based uh, on what the UK wants. It's based on US policy. And under the Biden administration, they have been very explicit that they're not having trade deals with any country at the moment. Um, But what we've been able to do is work on a state-to-state level. So we've had uh, mini trade deals, uh, so to speak, with various states such as Indiana and Oklahoma. We started with the small ones. That's a program that we're going to continue. We have memorandum of understanding Uh, between several states. So trade between the UK and US is strong. You don't need a free trade agreement to trade well. It can help, but it's just one type of tool. There are multiple tools that can be used. The US is still the biggest single investor in the UK. I believe their investment value is about 459 billion. So we're doing quite well, even though we don't have a free trade agreement and we can do more and do even better. 
And you're also looking for a trade deal with India. How many business visas should the UK grant India annually to get a trade deal over the line? I'm pretty sure you know, Lizzie, that I wouldn't be able to discuss anything of that nature from a negotiations on on the radio, but I I appreciate you trying. Those are uh, negotiation matters which our chief negotiators will be dealing with with um, their Indian counterparts. It'll require um, feeding in from multiple departments across government, uh, not least the Home Office. But whatever we do, I think the message we need to uh, make clear is that we're going for a quality deal. It's about uh, getting a good deal, not doing one uh, quickly. And we're going to do a deal that's going to be right both for India and for the UK. Kerry Badnock, the UK Trade Secretary, speaking to Bloomberg's Lizzie Burden a little bit earlier on. The, the suggestion certainly is that the UK wants to try and trade with as many as possible, any countries as possible, regions as possible. Uh, and yes, you are going to have higher growth rates off a lower base outside of the EU, but the EU sits on the UK's border and boundary. Uh, it does seem as if tensions may be attempting to be ratcheted a little bit lower by this new Sunak government, which has plenty of things to deal with right now. Uh, up next, we'll carry on the conversation. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, you're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So at this exact moment, in 24 hours, we'd be like 10 minutes away from the Fed decision. How's that for some quick math for you? Um, the data we got today, a bit more confusing. So the ISM manufacturing for October coming in a little bit above 50, so still relatively solid. Prices paid, though, fell a nice amount, under 50. New orders under 50 as well, but employment holding up. Uh, we spoke to Tim Fiore of um, of the ISM Manufacturing Institute, and he was saying that demand is weakening, whether you're looking at uh, orders here in the U.S. or those uh, abroad and internationally. There is weakness there. Um, the job market, though, is still relatively strong. The JOLTS number confirmed it with a 9.75 million um, openings. That's a lot. And, and we revised higher also for August. This puts the Fed in a bit of a quandary today over the next 24 hours. Mike McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent, uh, joins us now. Mike, how do you think they looked at the data today? Well, it is mixed news for them going forward. Uh, the November meeting is all going to be about the December meeting because they've already told us they'll do 75 tomorrow. But what do they do after that? Uh, it'll depend on the data. And today, the data were really mixed. As you mentioned, you got really good news on prices from the ISM, and you got uh, really mixed news out of the uh, uh, out of the JOLTS report because number of job openings went up and the number of layoffs went down. So, uh, you know, it, it, the labor market is still strong. New orders in ISM went up. So basically, it kind of gives a picture of a market that is still looking uh, to fill a lot of jobs. And as people get those jobs, they have more money to spend. So there are new orders, but things are tightening up a little bit. I think the Fed is probably going to want a lot more data. There's a couple more CPI yeah. reports and job reports before we get to the December meeting. So why should we get clarity from the Fed tomorrow? Will we get any clarity? Will the Fed want to play its cards close to its chest tomorrow, given the amount of data that lies between the November meeting and the December meeting, Mike? Absolutely. Uh, I think you make a very good point. We're not going to get a lot of clarity. Jay Powell is going to want to say something like, we're not done raising rates. Uh, we will raise rates higher. We're going to be data dependent to uh, decide. 
because he doesn't want to get the markets uh, either anticipating too much because they price things in immediately. And if 75 is too much and would help contribute to start of a recession, he doesn't want them doing that. And he doesn't want them giving up too much because if they think he's really dovish, they will see stocks go up and financial conditions will loosen. And mm-hmm. that works against what the Fed's trying to do. Do we get the dot plot tomorrow? No, we don't. Okay, no dot so, plot and no summary of economic prediction. So they have a little bit of time. So we're not going to see any sort of terminal rate conversation. How do you think he avoids the terminal rate combo? Well, I think he says we don't know. Uh, we there, there is general agreement, I think, on the committee um, that they'll be over four percent. They've they've gotten to that part in the dot plot, but where they go from there. He, again, he'll fall back on we're going to be data dependent. The data will tell us what we need to know. An uh, awful lot of people think they need to go to five or higher now. I'm not sure he wants to ratify a number, though. In terms of kind of the bigger picture here, how are they How are they kind of as a group sort of thinking how cohesive is the fed we're starting to get disagreements on on other central banks and you're certainly seeing that at the bank of england are how cohesive are the voting members of the fomc right now in terms of their outlook well they're starting to diverge in terms of what the terminal rate would be and whether the fed should step down to 50 basis points instead of 75 Uh, we've had a few voices suggesting that and then there are still some like Chris Waller, Jim Bullard, who are firm in their conviction that you need to keep raising rates at a fairly fast pace because the economy needs it. Uh, we're behind on inflation. Uh, at this point, they're going to be united on the 75. But then it's going to be interesting to watch everybody's public statements between now and the December 14th meeting, because uh, if you have if you want to make a case against uh, 75 now is going to be the time to do it. What do you think we get on Friday? Uh, you know, it's really hard to call the labor market these days. I think right? the idea that we get somewhere between two and 300,000 is a legitimate uh, range for guesses because we're looking for it to step down a little bit. And we have seen sort of a growing number of companies announce standstills, if not layoffs. Uh, I don't think we we get some high po- profile layoff announcements, but it's really not any kind of uh, widespread thing yet because jobless claims haven't moved. But uh, the Jolts numbers suggest companies still have jobs to fill. In Jolts today, there were 218,000 open jobs in the leisure and hospitality industry, which that was the one that was hit the hardest, and it was one of the ones that has recovered the most. But there's still a lot of jobs open, so. It's hard to say that we won't get much job creation, but the Fed is hoping it slows down. How much unemployment do we need to see to bring inflation down? That, I, I, this is the question I'm increasingly hearing right now, and nobody appears to have a clear answer. What does theory tell us? Well, it depends on a lot of factors that aren't in play at, at this time because or that are in play and, and wouldn't normally be. If supply chains are normalizing like ISM suggests and uh, we're seeing uh, price pressures fall, then it might not have to go up as high as in the past. Normally, once you get to uh, 
about a half percent increase in the unemployment rate, it then shoots up to about 3% more uh, when, the, when you end up in a recession. So that would put us over 6%. And there are certainly economists who are saying that's what we're going to need. But the Fed is still hoping it can get by with something under 5%, which would be close to what mm-hmm. they consider the natural rate of, of unemployment. Mike, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. Guy, I'm starting to have conversations with like friends about what a jobful recession looks like. Are we going to get into recession? What does Morgan Stanley think? I, I feel like that means something. <laughs> it's quite a conversation to be having with friends right now. I, that's what I'm saying. Like, if other people are talking to me about this, like, are we at the top of pessimism now? Oh, like, yeah, is this time you buy equities? We're way past, way past it if that's the conversation that's happening. This is Bloomberg.